I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. I do not like to cook for guests because the expectations are so high. People expect to like basically be invited into an episode of your TV show when they come over on a Tuesday night. Exactly. And I just want to make quesadillas or I just want to make pasta or I just want to order pizza, you know? Right. Right. I used to love having people over, but now, you know, I'll invite a friend, like a dear friend that I've known for 20 years. And she'll say, oh, I'm so excited for the best meal of my life. And I'm like, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. The TV show that's raised the expectations of Patty Hinich's dinner guests is Patty's Mexican Table. It's seen by more than 65 million people around the world, in the U.S. on PBS, but also as far abroad as Australia and Japan. Each season, Patty travels to a different area of Mexico and delves into the specific food culture of that region. She snags invites to restaurants, food trucks, and home kitchens, and charms everyone she meets into sharing secret ingredients, heirloom recipes, and family stories. When she gets excited about an ingredient or technique that someone shows her, she turns to the camera, talking directly to you, the viewer. La Colonial has so many good burritos to choose from. The first, chile con queso. And that queso? It's one bar of Philadelphia, one bar of uh, Vieira. You guys, he's sharing the recipe. Like, how generous is that? You know what? If you try to do it at your home... Patty shares what she learns on her show and in her cookbooks. As she told me, it's the role she was born to play. Because I love knowing how other people cook, what they eat. I'm super nosy. I like to look in the fridge and the drawers and the pantry. Like, I live for that, Dan. Like, I love to see that. Right. And then people don't want to have me over that much because they think I'm a very picky eater, that I'm not going to like, you know, home-style food. Or they think you have very high standards. And that is zero the case. I love messy, family, you know, easy, accessible food. But... Anyway. Do you want to peek in my fridge? Do you want me to take the computer upstairs? You can look in my fridge. Oh, my gosh. I would love that. All right. Let's go. Come on. Let's uh, go. Here, let's I'm... do it. Oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> this was not planned. But three minutes into my conversation with Patty, I'm carrying my laptop and recorder up from the basement where I record to my kitchen. Um, okay. Sorry. So here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So, uh, so this is the pantry. We got a lot of cereals. Oh, we have the same glass Tupperwares, which I love. And then, uh, okay, so I got spicy chili crisp, pesto, fish sauce. Oh, fish sauce is the best. Yeah. Soy sauce. Oh, I have the same one. Really? My oldest son, he went to a special store to find it. Yeah, yeah I got this at H Mart. Um, this is my um, mixed pickle, my Indian achar that I get. I can see why Patty's able to pry so many family recipes out of folks she meets. She's intensely curious about food and people. 
So what have you learned about me from my refrigerator, Patty? What what can you tell? I'm going to be like a tarot reader here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it looks like food is really a big part of your life. I mean, you have a lot of takeout stuff. You have a lot of leftovers from things you make. You have lots of condiments, which is a sign that you like to play and experiment with other cuisines. It looks like you have a thriving culinary life in your home, Dan. Wow. <laughs> well, thanks. I'll take it. Good. If I were to go inspect your fridge, yeah. what conclusions would I draw about you? You know what? I think we have a pretty similar landscape. I have lots of Tupperwares with things that I make at home. When the week starts, I typically make batches of things that I can repurpose. Like right now, I have Tupperwares with pinto beans that I turned into charro beans yesterday. I have white rice. I have some of that leftover Mexican chicken and shrimp fried rice. I have lots of condiments that I play with, just like you. Patty has always been like this. She was born and raised in Mexico City. When she was 10, she was with her father at a gas station. While he was getting gas, she saw a nearby street vendor selling gelatinas or jello. And I had left the car and I was talking with this guy about the jellos and he was explaining to me about the jellos and my dad brought me to the car and he said, Patty, you have to stop talking to anybody at any time. I turn around and you can be gone, like just stop talking to people, you know, and I'm just fascinated with people. Patty grew up eating all the many foods of Mexico City, including some less well-known ones. Her grandparents were Jewish refugees who fled persecution in Europe. I grew up eating the Ashkenazi or Eastern European food on Shabbat. Friday night dinner, Shabbat dinner. Either with my Polish grandmother or my Austrian grandmother. And they would make the matzo ball soup with a lot of schmaltz. And then she would make the grivenes, you know, the chicken skin with so much white onion because that's what we use in Mexico. And then she would use that as a topic of guacamole and we'd put that on a piece of challah. So crispy bits of fried chicken skin on top of guacamole on Jewish challah bread. Yes, which is crazy delicious. Gribbonus should be on more things. I agree. And then if the challah finished, then we would continue with the corn tortillas. And then she would make the gefilte fish and she would make the traditional, you know, the white cold. Right. But she would also make the very traditional Veracruz style gefilte fish, which is traditional of the Jewish community in Mexico. Because people don't know that Jews have been in Mexico since the 1500s. Because they were fleeing the Inquisition and they were trying to survive. As you say, there's been a longstanding Jewish community in Mexico City, and Mexico is a very diverse country that has immigrants from Asia and from the Middle East from various waves that have come for all different reasons over the centuries. That being said, I wonder if you did feel somehow different growing up than others. Absolutely. Patty says when she was growing up, there was a national myth that was taught in Mexico's schools. It said that present-day Mexicans are descended specifically from Spanish colonizers and indigenous Mexicans. But they forgot to include the Afro-Mexico, the Asians, the Lebanese, the Syrian, the Jews, the Italians, the French. So yes, when I was growing up in Mexico, I did feel like I was a little bit shredding between worlds because I went to a school that was not a Jewish school. In fact, I was 
the only one along with a friend in a class of like 150 that were Jews. And you do stand out, you know, because it's Gomez Ramirez Lopez and here goes Rihansky. Like, who is that? You know, it, most Mexican names didn't end in SKI. Exactly. That wasn't the only way Patty struggled to fit in. While her family did Shabbat dinner, they weren't all that religious. So when she went to events in the Jewish community, she kind of stuck out there, too. Oh, those are the Jews that are not Jews. Patty went to college in Mexico, then moved to Texas in 1997. Once again, she didn't fit in. People in the grocery stores would see a blue-eyed woman with an accent and ask if she was French or Scandinavian. She says when she told them she was Mexican, they'd seem disappointed. Then when they found out she was Jewish, they were just confused. After a couple years in Texas, Patty and her family moved to Washington, D.C. She got a master's in Latin American studies at Georgetown. I had a job in a policy research center and I was doing academic research and I was miserable. Patty's job was to write about fostering democracy and civic culture in Latin America. One day, her boss asked her to put together a report comparing Peru and Mexico's post-dictatorship democracies. And I started researching about their ceviches and who got to ceviche first and, <laughs> and, and why did the Peruvians spell ceviche with B as in boy and we spelled it with a V. Why do they marinate it for 10 seconds and we marinate it for 10 hours, you know? And so I said, you, you know, you asked me to write this, but I'm writing this article about Peruvian and Mexican ceviche and I think that's not what you want. So I think I have to quit. So... <laughs> <laughs> So that's what she did. Instead of wonky political analysis, Patty would direct her passion for research towards food. She went back to school to L'Académie de Cuisine in suburban D.C. She started using her research skills to study Mexican food and did translations on the side. Ten years after leaving policy for Pastor, Patty became the resident chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in D.C. And like 120 people at a time would come and I would devise this theme. It would be like Afro-Mexico or Mexican vanilla or Cinco de Mayo. So through the menu, you would learn about a region of Mexico, its ingredients, its techniques. It was like a journey in a meal. And I would do the demo and then people would eat that as a dinner. And I remember doing all sorts of Mexican themes. I do remember then really resisting when people would ask me, to share Mexican Jewish menus or dishes, I would get a little defensive, you know, like, why do you want me to do Jewish things? I'm Mexican, you know? Patty says she felt this way because growing up, her Jewish identity and her Mexican identity seemed separate to her. She did some Jewish things at home with her family, but outside the home, she never saw Jewish culture as part of anything Mexican. Like 95, 96% of the population identified as Catholic. Most of our holidays, calendar, celebration have to do in one way or another with the calendar of the Catholic Church. So when I started teaching at the Mexican Cultural Institute, I was really focused on taking a deep dive into everything that was Mexico. And it seemed to me that the Jewish part of Mexico's history was not a main element. And I still hadn't made sense of all the pieces of my identities as a Mexican woman, as a Jewish woman, as now an immigrant in the U.S. But as Patty did more research for her classes and traveled across Mexico, she gained a deeper understanding of all the many parts of Mexican culture. 
including the Jewish parts. And then there was going to be an exhibit, and there were two Jewish artists, one American and one Mexican, who had come from the same place in Poland, and they did similar art, and they were doing this exhibit, and the director at the Institute said, isn't this like a theme that interests you? Aren't you Jewish? You know? In the beginning, I was like, no, 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 we do Mexican. And then I was like, well, yes, and Mexican Jews are a big part of Mexico, and they've been a part. So... I researched for that class for months and I did interviews and I did a menu that not only included the Ashkenazi Jewish dishes, but also Lebanese, Syrian, Turkish. And I remember at the end, it was a Friday and it was a Shabbat and some people that came were Jews and they had brought their candles and they asked me to do the blessings for Shabbat dinner. And I don't even speak Hebrew then. I don't know what any prayer says, you know, but I know the Shabbat prayers by heart. And I remember doing the Shabbat prayer at the Mexican Cultural Institute, which to me represents Mexico. And I remember like having to hold back my tears, you know, and it did feel like a like an important moment. It wasn't until... I switched into cooking that I was finally able to make sense of all the pieces of myself. Did you know when you made that transition to food that that was part of what you were after? No, I was just hungry. I was just hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, we'll hear how Patty took the next step in her career to a world-renowned TV host and cookbook author. Plus, she'll tell us about a quesadilla nacho hybrid that she found while filming in Jalisco. And we'll discuss how food can be a type of diplomacy. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. 
And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week's show is a very fun one. You got to check it out. I go out foraging for pawpaws. They're North America's largest native fruit. They taste like some kind of combination of tropical fruits like mango and banana, but they grow in cold climates and they have a devoted cult following. In fact, one self-described pawpaw nerd drove from Ohio to New York to take me foraging for them. Every year I forget what it's like to eat a pawpaw. Then I think, will they even come back? Do pawpaws even exist? And then they do come back and I'll be like, do I even like pawpaws? And then eventually I'll come across the first ripe one I come across and I get to experience that all over again. And it's so fun and reassuring. I'll be like, oh yeah, I do love pawpaws after all. Why are people so drawn to pawpaws? And will our search for them bear fruit? Tune in to find out. That one's up now. Okay, let's pick up with Patty Hinich's story. While working at the Mexican Cultural Institute, she also started a food blog and wrote for some publications, including the Washington Post. She was approached by TV producers who wanted to make a cooking show with her, but they were worried about her accent and thought a focus only on Mexican food was too narrow for American viewers. So Patty struck out on her own, linking up with a local public TV station to make a pilot. In 2011, that pilot debuted as Patty's Mexican Table on PBS. Two years later, her first cookbook came out. It focused on classic Mexican dishes from back home that she missed when she moved to the U.S. Her second book, Mexican Today, was more contemporary with modern riffs on traditional fare. Next month, she'll release her third cookbook, Treasures of the Mexican Table. The third cookbook goes back a little bit to the spirit of the first cookbook. I have to tell you, I like the first cookbook much more than the second cookbook. Why? Why, why, <laughs> why, why do you like the first one better? Because... 
all the dishes and all the stories like spoke so much closer to my heart and my story and my uh, they're really go-tos, you know, they're the batalla. We say in Spanish, the batalla is when you bring something to the battle because you know it's going to work. And it is all that the first cookbook is and then 10 times deeper because I go to the little towns, micro regions, lar larger regions and find the Mexican classics that are super beloved, that are heirlooms, that have been passed through generations. Some may be newer a few generations, some may be like centuries, but in an updated way, in a way that you can make them at home in an accessible, easy way. And they tell the stories of the places, the people, and I... Every single recipe, you know, like the salsa matcha, like the salsa matcha is a category of salsa. You would love that. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, salsa matcha is this salsa that originally comes from Veracruz, but it's kind of spread all over Mexico. And now it's also very hot in the U.S. And it has a base of garlic, typically peanuts and one kind or another of chile. And then you cook that gently. And then at the end, you add a splash of vinegar or some kind of acid, a little bit of sugar, and you chop it a little and then you store it. And you can use that oil as a flavoring oil for a thousand things. But the salsa matcha, I'm going to show you. I mean, in my new cookbook, and it has a gorgeous photo. Perfect. Hold on. Salsa... 135. Look at how pretty these looks like. Uh, look like them. Oh, that does look really nice. A lot of big chunks. There's a lot going on in there. I, I can imagine a lot of flavors, a lot of texture. And also what I know I would love about that is that because you have bigger chunks of different things is the different bites will be a little bit different because you're going to get different ratios of different components and different bites. And that's going to make it continually delicious and interesting to eat. Exactly. So here I made like a wild salsa matcha where I just add my favorite nuts. And my favorite nuts are pistachos, pine nuts, walnuts, pecans. And then I combine chile de árbol, which is like smoky, rose, rustic, spicy and ancho which is kind of prune like chocolate like and then mm -hmm. and then you know what i added i added um pumpkin seeds which you can see here and i added i added a lot of amaranth seeds which you can also now find in the stores and so it ends up being like a cross between a wet granola a chunky salsa a nut garnish so I make avocado toast and I spoon like a cup of this on top. Oh. Or if you're eating yogurt or even ice cream or pound cake, but also if you grilled shrimp or if you boiled a potato, like it's just, it's just, I think this salsa really embodies the spirit of Mexican cooking. It's so adaptable. And also I think this points to a lot, so much of your work. It, it's also like... Not the salsa that most Americans find are accustomed to seeing in the supermarket. I mean, it's got so, there's so much more going on, and it's specific to a region also. And that's exactly what I love. I love, I love unveiling things like not only for the benefit of my reader or my viewer, but also for my benefit because I'm insanely curious, and I love humbling myself you know like you thought you knew something but then you realized it was this other thing and <laughs>
one of the things that I was thinking about in looking at, your, at sort of the the journey of your cookbooks is that, um, like with any cuisine, you have the traditional dishes, you know, that are sort of like your home cooking. And then, of course, like there's a vibrant restaurant scene, especially in Mexico City, but all over Mexico, where you have chefs who are always innovating and evolving and trying new things. Culture is always changing everywhere. A while back, I interviewed Maeve Higgins, who's a comedian and a writer who's Irish, has been living in the U.S. for a while now, but grew up in Ireland. And she talked about meeting Irish Americans whose families came from Ireland 100, 150 years ago and how they're still very proud of their Irish heritage, even though they've been in the U.S. for generations. But their perception of Ireland was kind of frozen in time from when their families left. And Maeve just arrived from Ireland and was like, yes, I love Ireland, too, (laughs) but it's pretty different from what your great grandparents remember. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting tension sometimes for, for any immigrant to any new place. Your memories kind of get frozen in time from where you left and the place keeps changing even though you're not there anymore. Yes. Something that has helped me stay super updated and not get frozen in time is that every year I go back to a new region for Patty's Mexican table to explore. So, for example, now we went to Jalisco for season 10. My last time in Jalisco was 25 years ago, okay? So I remember the torta ahogada. I remember how it dripped down my hands, how I crushed that sandwich. It was the crunchiest, spiciest, wettest thing ever. (laughs) So the torta ahogada is like a crusty Mexican sandwich, you know, like a torta, but it's made with a special bread called the virote. You know, all the tortas, um, all the Mexican bread comes from the French, from when European monarchy in the 1860s, and they brought... French bakers, and so bread started being made in Mexico. In um, Jalisco, they make this kind of bread that's much harder, much saltier, and this bread really withholds and can withstand a lot of sauce. So this bread is opened, it's topped with carnitas, which you know, like luscious pieces of caramelized pork butt. And then it's covered with two different sauces, like um, a red salsa that's like a tomato sauce, as in, you know, like the French dip that you dip into the... Like a roast beef sandwich and you dip it into the into the Exactly. Right. But then you have the option of adding a super spicy vinegary chile de árbol salsa. And then it's a mess... It's insane. And I'm eating the torta ahogada and I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy delicious. And then this this person next to me who's from El Paso, Texas, is asking for the other special. And I'm like, what's the other special? And they're like, oh, it's the destrozado. You know, Mexicans, we we come up with this crazy (laughs) funky name. The destrozado (laughs) translates to the destroyed. Okay, so the destroyed is a crunchy, crispy quesadilla. That's filled with mashed potatoes or cheese or beans. And they take these crunchy, crispy quesadillas, deep fried. They break it into your plate and then they put carnitas on top. And then (laughs) they juice it with the torta ahogada tomato sauce. And then the chile de árbol sauce. And then they dress that with some like pickled cabbage. And pico de gallo. Oh, no. And then they give you a spoon because there's no possible way that you can eat it any other way. The way I'm picturing it is kind of like 
the greatest plate of nachos in the history of the world, but the nachos are crumbled, chopped up pieces of deep fried quesadilla. Exactly. Exactly. It's brilliant. I can't even. I can't even. I want to eat that so badly. (laughs) Do you need a grip or a best boy on your next shoot, Patty? Because (laughs) I will volunteer. I was like... Forget the torta ahogada. I, I came for the torta ahogada, but I'm sticking for the destrozado. And I think that is one of the most fabulous things that, you know, you go back for the classics and you learn that there's all these new things. But I do think that it is very hard for um, immigrant communities that aren't able to go back to their home country to stay updated. And, and you do end up in a little bubble, you know? Right. And to be clear, I'm not saying you have to keep up or you or you have to replicate the past forever. I just think it's an interesting tension. It's fascinating. So how do you navigate that tension when you are deciding what to present to your viewers and your readers? Yeah, I'm just not picky. I'll eat it all. I'll try it all. So when faced with a choice between the past and the present, Patty chooses both. That approach of being in different worlds at the same time is also a big part of Patty's new docu-series, La Frontera, Spanish for The Border. Each episode focuses on a different area along the Texas-Mexico border. As Patty shows in the series, the border itself is not the hard barrier or wall that many may imagine. Workers and various goods go back and forth every day. Families with relatives on the other side go back and forth every day. There's constant intermingling. So people who live along the border have to be able to navigate both sides. They live between cultures, or in two cultures at once, which is where Patty has spent most of her life. We always say that Mexican-Americans in Mexico, you're seen as the ones who left. And in the U.S., you're the immigrants. You're the ones who came. You're caught in between all the time, you know, and you realize when you get to the border and La Frontera, and those communities, that those feelings and that way of living is the most intense ever. And it is such a beautiful thing that when you lose the fear of having to explain yourself all the time, of being many things at the same time, and, and that people don't have to feel less because they're part of two things and not of one, you know, that doesn't make them less or less whole, you realize that the people at the border and their food, they live in this universe where there's these other possibilities that don't apply to the categories and labels that we have created to understand the world. There are people who are enriching not one country, but two at the same time. They know how to survive and thrive in not one language, but two, not one culture, but two, not to one system of laws and rules, but two. It's like they have these switches, you know? It's fascinating then. Right. I mean, you can be sitting down at a table with the border patrol officer and his sister is a muralist from the other side of the of the wall who is illegal and the mother, you know, is a nun who helps refugees and the other one is a a Republican politician, and they're all a family and they're all eating carnitas together. Right. The other thing that you realize there is that the history is that much deeper and that we are that much closer as countries. I mean, 
a huge chunk of the U.S. used to be Mexico and the border moved, you know, the people that were there were Mexicans until, you know, 150 years ago. You know, the politics, of course, divide, but these are communities that thrive together. As I told Patty, I watched the first episode of La Frontera and it seemed to me to be her most personal TV work ever, which I really appreciate. It's also her most political. She interviews a female mariachi, a rarity in the male-dominated craft, about how the unique pain that women experience in childbirth, romance, is fuel for her music. And Patty shares raw perspectives on the border itself. As connected as these two cities are, the wall here stands at over 20 feet high and stretches on for hundreds of miles over open desert landscape and cuts right through the heart of Juarez and El Paso. You know, being here and knowing how the wall and the border is such an important presence, tell me a little bit about that and what this means to you. Like, is I mean, that a... Carlos Fuentes called it a scar. And I yeah. think to us these days, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's an open wound. It's, and, and it's gushing. As it turns out, Patty's old job as a policy analyst may not have been such a bad fit. I've heard you describe yourself as very passionate and opinionated, but <laughs> yes. you also said that you avoided politics in your food work for a long time. So in that sense, were you like withholding your opinions? Was that a struggle earlier in your career? I am not drawn to politics as we would understand politics, like candidates and parties and like all of that makes a lot of noise in my head. I do believe that I have a mission in trying to connect people and share stories and bring the microphone to places. And just as I've struggled to make sense of my identity, I want to share the identity of others. And I find that I've come full circle then. Slowly but surely, I've been jumping into much more substantial and deeper topics and themes that are much more meaningful to me and that I care much more about. And I want to go in that direction. I don't want to run for anything. You know, I'm not a politician in that sense, but I just find that if I'm going to spend my time meeting people and connecting people, I don't want to just eat a taco and go. This is something we've been seeing lately in my conversations with a range of folks and in the culture at large like Padma Lakshmi in her show Taste the Nation, using food to show the lives of immigrants to make it harder to dehumanize them. Or Kamel Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon producing Little America, using portraits of people to show that the immigrant experience isn't a monolith. People in the world of culture and entertainment seem to be jumping off the fence, trying to tell stories that open minds. You've talked about the idea of food as soft power, yeah. Which is a political science type term. <laughs> like if, if, if for folks who aren't familiar, if hard power is guns and bombs, soft power is more like the power of, of culture to influence people in other yeah. places. And you've talked about the idea of, of food culture, perhaps as a form of soft power that might have influence um, over people. And so how do you hope to use your show and Mexican food as soft power? You're very good. I love this question too. We're animals. We're hungry. We have to eat. We have to feed our, our family. And and when when somebody puts in front of you, you know, the plate of enchiladas that their mom made, 
you're likely to connect at a deeper level, even if you know that that person is a hardcore Republican and you're a hardcore Democrat, you're going to connect over the enchiladas, you know? So I do feel that people are much more able to connect and share who they are and share their stories and remove judgment when food is presented. I agree with you to a point, and maybe it kind of depends on the week you ask me, <laughs> but I do also feel, I wonder your thoughts, like a while back, I, remember I did an interview with, with a comedian named Jenny Yang, who's Chinese American, and I remember her saying, just because someone eats Chinese food doesn't necessarily mean they're going to treat me with respect. That's so true. Are, are there limits to, to how effective food can, uh, how much food can be soft power? Of course there are limits, but I think the impact is substantial and meaningful. So to give you an example, in social media, I can tell you that when Trump was in power, I would say half of my followers were Trump supporters and half weren't. Just guessing. They would tell me, Patty, your show is my favorite show. I love your taco. And I would look at the handle and it would say, build a wall, you know, Trump for 2020, whatever. And I would be like, I'm Mexican and you're eating a taco and I'm in America, but okay, love a taco, you know, love a taco. How many people are making now taco night at home? They may have uh, not so great feelings about Mexicans, but I do believe that it's kinder, softer kind of influence that may be more effective. You know, that slowly but surely, like the kids are learning about tacos and about Mexicans. And in a way, they're learning about how Mexicans enrich this country. That's the power of food. It may be subtle, but it can be permanent and stronger than people think. That's Patty Heenich. Her new series, La Frontera, is airing on PBS this fall. And her latest cookbook, Treasures of the Mexican Table, is out November 23rd. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. Next week on the show, I talk with music icon and food icon Patty LaBelle. We'll talk about her viral sweet potato pie, touring the segregated South back in the 1960s, and much, much more. Patty LaBelle next week. By the way, for that one, check out last week's show where I go foraging for pawpaws. It's North America's largest native fruit, and it has a devoted cult following. Why are people obsessed with pawpaws? We investigate. Check it out. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Rachel M. Ward. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Shannon in Tomball, Texas, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.